Today we're reading from Luke 1, uh, verses 39 to 56. Please pay careful attention to the Word of God. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother, my Lord, the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones. But he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servants Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. It's a very obvious, uh, maybe even a silly thing to say, um, but Christmas is big. Around the world, Christmas is big. I'm told that there will be more than 2 billion people in 160 countries tomorrow celebrating Christmas. It doesn't mean they're all Christians, it doesn't mean they'll all be in church, but they will have some form of celebration of the day. Uh, nine out of ten people in the United States, even if they're not Christian, will celebrate Christmas. And a re research conducted by Wonga SA revealed that last Christmas, South Africans between the ages of 18 and 65 spent an average of 6,300 rand each over the festive season, injecting over 250 billion rand into the economy. Makes you go, what recession, you know? It seems no matter how bad things have been economically, Christmas time, there's always a bump in the economy as people pull out all the stops. So Christmas is big for commercial reasons, but its significance is far more important than that. And so I want to talk to you about the fact that Christmas reveals a big God with a big plan. Um, we are looking at Mary's song uh, this morning, which is sometimes called the Magnificat, which is Latin for the first word of the song, which uh, the NIV is translated glorifies. Let's look at verse 46, please. <clears throat> the Lord, verse 46. Okay, I'll read it to you. It's not on the screen. Verse 46 says, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. There it is. The word glorify is the word magnify, and that's where the word magnificat comes from. The journey to Elizabeth um, would have taken three to four days for Mary to make, probably about 150 kilometers away. In verse 41, the unborn presence of the Messiah causes 
John the Baptist, also unborn, to leap in his mother's womb. And in verse 42, Elizabeth cries out, she exclaims, with blessings, we are told. Uh, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, verse 41, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. Very kind of the Lord, don't you think, to have given Mary, Elizabeth, an older relative, a little bit ahead in the pregnancy, also an angel having appeared to her, also an unusual birth, uh, and she demonstrates a wonderful understanding of the situation as the Lord gives her to Mary to help her through this difficult time. Uh, verse 43, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's quite astonishing insight into the birth of Jesus, into the child that Mary is carrying. And the result of the meeting of these two women is a song. Mary uh, writes a song. She must have been very grateful to have somebody who understood the situation and there to help her along. And her song is a magnificent tapestry of Scripture. It relies um, on and references the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Do you remember that story? Way back in the Old Testament, Hannah is without child and longing for a child and she prays for a child and eventually God gives her a child and his name is Samuel and she also writes a song when she discovers that she is going to be with child but also Psalm 113 Mary is, is has in her head and weaves that in and the result is a very beautiful hymn of praise and we're going to look at three things that this song points to Christmas reveals a big God Christmas reveals a big reversal, and Christmas reveals a big plan. So first, Christmas reveals a big God, verse 46 to 50. So she begins, my soul magnifies, glorifies the Lord. Um, I wonder what that can mean. What can it mean to ma magnification, of course, means make the Lord bigger. How do you make God bigger than he already is? You can't make God bigger. He's already big. He holds the world in his hands. Look at Psalm 113, the psalm that she has in her mind, verses 4 to 6. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. Can you see the size of God in those verses? He is already magnified, isn't he? You can't make God bigger. He is immense. And in fact, it's not even theologically correct to use that language of God, that he is immense, because he is omnipresent and he is spirit. He has no limitations. He's uncontainable. He holds everything in his hands. He is above, before, and beyond anything and everything. My wife and I were on a youth camp uh, last week, and uh, one of the the main speaker was being quizzed by the teenagers, and one of the teenagers said, do you mean to, to tell me that we have to accept the fact that God is, control, is in control of 8 billion people and that he knows everything that's going on in everybody's lives at the same time? Surely that can't be possible. She hadn't, she hadn't read the Magnificat. For God is above all things. He stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. And so what does it mean when she says, 
my soul magnifies the Lord. She means that God has been magnified in her own heart and mind. She's not making an objective statement about the size of God. She's saying, for me personally, spiritually, God has become the most important person in my life. She verbally enlarges the Lord, which is a sign that he has become her everything. And so she exalts him. You know, this happens when you become a Christian. And those of you who have been Christians for a while, you'll be able to recognize this and testify and have experienced this as we journey together with the Lord. Isn't it true that over time, when you look back on your life, you can see that he's become more and more central, more and more significant in our lives? We begin to enlarge him in our hearts, in our lives. And here it spills out onto her lips as she sings this song. With everything that is in me, verse 46, I am magnifying the Lord. As we approach Christmas, this is an important reminder for us, isn't it? Because there are lots of other things that are magnified at this time of the year, mostly commercial things, or maybe family or maybe holiday. Those are all wonderful things and good things to be received with gratitude. But they're not on the level of the Lord. The Lord needs to be enlarged in our hearts. And it's worth pausing for a moment and asking, I wonder what is, what is being magnified in your heart at the moment as you sit here? Only you know the answer to that. What's the most important thing? Who or what are you magnifying in your heart? But Christmas, whatever else it may be, is a time to reflect and it's a time to recalibrate as we look back on the year, maybe recognizing that actually our lives have revolved around other things this year, not around the Lord. Let's, let's course correct and come back to Mary's vision of God. Today's a good day to put that right, maybe to ask for forgiveness even for other things have been magnified in your heart and maybe the Lord has been relegated to the back benches of your life instead of being on the throne, front and center. She magnifies God not only for who he is but for what he has done for her. Look at verse 48. He, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. So she bases her song on the song of Hannah back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, before she gave birth to Samuel, she cried out to God for a child. The time that, that Samuel was born into was very similar to the time of Jesus' birth. It was a time when Israel, the nation, needed intervention. God promised intervention through Samuel centuries before. And as Mary journeys to Elizabeth, she's turning over the story of Hannah in her mind, and she quotes word for word in verse 48 from Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. She's reflecting on the fact that God is a God who rescues. God is a God who brings help to his people, who can avert disaster for his people. And she recognizes, doesn't she, her own spiritual poverty, her humble state, she says. We must realize our spiritual poverty before the Lord. And Christmas is a good time to be reminded of that. The starting point for any relationship with God 
is to recognize our lowly estate before him spiritually. We are not his equal. We are lowly. Christmas is actually a very humbling thing, for it reminds us that we needed a baby to save us. It reminds us that we are needy and lowly. She magnifies God for who he is to her. Look at these three qualities that she focuses in on. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. Did you see the three attributes of God that she focuses on? He's mighty, he's holy, and he's merciful. She calls him the mighty one. God's power to save his people is what is in her mind. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. Luke 1 verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. He's mighty, but he's also holy. Holiness might be the attribute of God that really approaches the essence of God more than any other word that you can think to use. It has to do with the fact that he is entirely other to everything that he has made. He is unique in a category of his own. He exists in unapproachable light. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. And so how wonderful that she adds that third attribute, merciful. You know, that's the attribute you want after you've heard somebody is both mighty and holy. What do you need after that? I need mercy. The God who sees everything, the God who cannot tolerate sin, the God who is mighty and stands above all things, looks at my life, and we shrink back from that were it not from his mercy. Mercy is God's undeserved favor. It is God not giving us what we do deserve. That's what mercy is. Imagine if God was only mighty and holy and not merciful. It would be a terrifying place to be. None of us could ever draw near to God and be safe. For we are unholy. We are not like God. God's holiness is a problem to us. It's a barrier for us. It makes God dangerous to us. But he's a God of mercy. And his mercy extends to those who fear him. He's mighty, he's holy, and he is merciful. You know what strikes me about Mary's song is that she really talks like somebody who knows God personally. Um, she seeped in personal knowledge of the true God. Her response is personal, deeply personal. My soul, my spirit, she says. And her godly gratitude and humility is very striking. There's no personal aggrandizement. I'm the mother of the Lord. It's a shame that some churches have elevated Mary to that level. She never did that. She's self-deprecating and God-glorifying. She knows God, but she also knows herself. And so in verse 47, don't miss it. It's easy to miss. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She recognizes that she needs a Savior. And so her own awareness of her own need, she needs to be saved from her sin. Of course, at one level, she's speaking nationally as a Jew in an occupied land, the Jews needed a savior from the Romans. But at another level, she's speaking personally. She's sinful. She's aware of that. She has failed in her responsibility towards God. She needs a savior just like you and I do. 
And so Christmas is a good time to remember that we are all in need of a Savior. I wonder, do you know God like this? I'm not asking if you know about God and if you know the Christmas story and if you can fill in a Christmas quiz and get them all right. Do you actually know God personally as your Savior? Have you asked Him to remove your sin so that you can survive His holiness? He loves to forgive sin, but it does require an acknowledgement that you need to be forgiven. We can't be spiritually proud in front of God, can we? We must be lowly like she is. We need God to save us. I wonder this Christmas, can I ask you with respect, can I challenge you, will you respond like Mary does to Jesus? She makes God bigger in her heart, mind, and life. Or is there something else that is going to occupy you this Christmas? So she recognizes God's person, but then she recognizes, secondly, God's plans. Christmas reveals, secondly, a big reversal. She sings about the plans of God. And notice that it's in the past tense, verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. She's singing about things that haven't yet taken place, but are so certain to take place that she can sing about them in the past tense as if they have already taken place. It's called the prophetic past tense, and it's not, an, it's not uncommon in the Bible. She sings about a series of reversals that are about to take place. For God can reverse every human circumstance completely, for the kingdom of God is not like human kingdoms. The gospel of Jesus brings some down and raises others up. You know, Luke's, Luke is particularly interested in the unexpected people who are saved by Jesus. He is the gospel writer of the four gospel writers who is interested in the poor and the downtrodden and those who are dispossessed in society like children and like women were. And Jesus' interaction with those groups of people. And so there's a prostitute in chapter 7 of Luke who is raised up and saved. And there is a corrupt businessman in chapter 19 who is raised up and saved, Zacchaeus. And there is a parable in chapter 16 about Lazarus and the rich man and how the rich man was expecting to be saved but actually goes to hell and how Lazarus, who seems to be living in hell on earth, is actually taken up to heaven. God is the reverser of fortunes. Of course, Mary might have the exodus in her mind. God can take slaves and make them a superpower. And God can take a superpower like Egypt and remove them from their position. God is able to do the impossible. And so there is a power reversal. He humbles the powerful and the proud. And he lifts up the humble. That's God's way. Are you humble? You know, to be proud in the thoughts of my heart... 
Uh, look at um, verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Pride doesn't only come with money or status. Often it does. But you can be poor and still be proud. You can, you can be so societally or socioeconomically lowly and still have pride in your inmost thoughts, pride of heart. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We don't have to be the richest or the most powerful person alive to be proud in the imagination of our own hearts. The proud are those who are spiritually proud. They are those who this Christmas time will overlook the core meaning of Christmas, I need a savior, because they don't think it applies to them. I hope that's not you. But religious people who think that by their own effort they can be right with God are spiritually proud. We need to become lowly before the Lord. For those who are up can quickly go down, and those who are down can go up. Look at how he puts it in verse 53. He puts it in economic terms. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. The hungry and the poor in Luke's gospel is normally a reference to those who are spiritually hungry, to those who know that without Jesus they have nothing. Do you remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? which you find in Matthew chapter 5, but you also find it in Luke chapter 6, where one of the opening phrases is, blessed are the poor. He's not saying that there is virtue in poverty. He's talking about those who recognize their spiritual need, that they are not spiritually self-sufficient. And so I wonder, can I ask you to examine your own heart this morning in the privacy of your own heart as you sit here. What is the state of your heart? Are you hungry for God? Or do you take the view, as many will, as most will, tomorrow, that Jesus really has nothing to offer us this Christmas if we are rich and full and self-sufficient? But isn't it true to say that we all, no matter how resourced you may or may not be, we all hunger for something, don't we? All of us, we're born with a hunger in us. I don't mean a physical hunger. For something that we think, if only we could get that or achieve that or attain that or have that or be in that relationship, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A spiritual hunger which will lead to a magnifying of God in our hearts and in our lives. You know, many people will, come, will be in churches tomorrow around our country, around the world, and they will hear the, Chris, the Christmas message faithfully preached, and they will sit there, and what are they hungering for? The party after church, the lunch, the holiday, the presents, the family, all of those things, good things but not the best thing. In this world, friends, God engages in mighty reversals. Those who hunger for the Lord will be lifted up. And lastly, and 
much more briefly now. Christmas reveals a big plan. I want you to notice that she mentions Abraham in verse 55. Or let me read from verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised. As Mary looks at the world, she understands Christmas in terms of a promise made to Abraham two and a half thousand years earlier, four and a half thousand years from where we are sitting. The promise of God to Abraham contained a promise that was so big that it would span all of time and transcend all of humanity and all of culture. A promise that the whole world, every person who ever lived, would be blessed as a result of Abraham. Look at this quote that you may know very, very well from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What a wonderful promise that spans all of time. God enters into an arrangement with Abraham, an arrangement that will impact the whole world, and do you know, is still impacting the world today. Our generation is being impacted by a promise that God made four and a half millennia ago. Because of my dealings with you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because Jesus eventually comes from Abraham. And so in verse 48, Mary says, He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Because of your dealings with Abraham, blessing will come. Because of your dealings with me, Mary, blessing will come. And our generation is included in that. God's mercy, promised four and a half thousand years ago, is still operational today and is still on offer to you this morning. God always works through an individual to bless the world. That's what he did through Abraham, through Mary, and ultimately and supremely through our Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Friends, we all know that Christmas is big, but did you realize that it was this big? It started four and a half thousand years ago, and it's still going. God is still keeping his promise to Abraham to establish his kingdom. God is still releasing blessing to the world through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as men and women turn to him and put their trust in him. Little did Abraham know that it would still be continuing so long after he lived. Little did Mary know that this plan would be so big and at this stage in the story culminate in Jesus' death. Christmas is much bigger than any of us thought. It's about a history-spanning, world-reversing, universe-affecting plan that has been put in place thousands of years ago. A plan that finds its focus on one man, Jesus. Don't you want to be part of that? Or are you too busy with your little plan that's going to last, if you're lucky, two generations? Too busy building your little kingdom? 
Maybe you've lost sight of the real kingdom that's going to outlast and that's going to transcend all things. Don't you want to be part of something that's going to last, something bigger than all of us? And so this Christmas, the challenge is let's magnify the one whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Let's rejoice that his mercy is still available to our generation. And it might be that there is somebody here this morning or somebody on Zoom who wants to ask Jesus for mercy for the first time. Today is a good day for you to do that. Now will you bow with me as we pray. Just a moment of quiet reflection in your own heart and mind. And for you to say whatever is appropriate for you in your situation to say to the Lord. Maybe you need to say sorry for losing sight of things. Maybe you need to ask for mercy for the first time. Maybe you need to say thank you for the mercy that you have enjoyed this year. Father, it's a humbling thing to hear of your great plan and that we can be incorporated into it and included in it. We thank you so much for that and ask you please to forgive us for being small-minded, busy, so busy and distracted by our own small plans but forgetting about yours. We want to be part of that grand plan that you have for all of time. We pray for those who might be here this morning who have never put their trust in you. They've never asked you for mercy. Please, would you be kind to them and reveal yourself to them even now? And Lord, we pray that this Christmas we'll be able to see through all of the distractions and to lock on to the importance of magnifying you in our hearts and in our lives, not just on Christmas Day, but for the years to come. And we pray that you would help us to do that for Jesus' sake. Amen.